Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This episode has been recorded at BreakoutCon 2018, Toronto's premier tabletop gaming convention for board games and role-playing games. This recording has been made possible thanks to the organizers of BreakoutCon and the fine contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 147, Blood on the Table, Horror in Role-Playing Games. Presented by Sarah Richardson, Michelle Lyons-McFarland, and James Gates. Moderated by Brand Robbins. In two minutes, this is going to be blood on the table, horror and role-playing games. This is going to be a potentially adult situation. We're going to be talking about dirty shit, and I'm going to say the word fuck at least 10,000 times. If anybody has a problem with this, Paul, sit your ass down. The door's over there. Okay, that's the one minute. So, this is Blood on the Table, Horror and RPGs. I'm Brand, I'll be moderating the panel. And I'm gonna now have the panel members introduce themselves. These are all uh, women who have a long history in role-playing games, in horror, and in horror fiction as well. Um, and I think we're very lucky to have them. So, if we can just start to my right. Hi, I'm Jane Gates. I, I've been in RPGs for about three years now, but I come from the science fiction and fantasy publishing world, and uh, my first published pieces were actually uh, Shared World Horror. Um, so this is kind of going back to my roots and something I really like. Um, and currently I make things for money so that I can spend a lot more time making things for no money. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Michelle Lyons McFarland. Uh, I'm co-owner of Growling Door Games and president of the Indie Game Design Network. Or Indie Game Designers Network. Yes. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, I spent a long time editing and writing for World of Darkness and sort of for White Wolf and then for Onyx Path Publishing. Um, we currently have Chill Third Edition, which is an investigative horror game. Um, and I also have a game that's over on the indie table uh, called Tragedy in Five Acts, uh, which is the best time you'll ever have screwing your characters over in a Shakespearean sort of way. And I'm Sarah Richardson. Um, I am the designer of a non-horror uh, game of 1970s girl gang uh, called Velvet Glove. I'm one of the co-authors <laughs> of uh, Bluebeard's Bride, a game of feminine horror, which you can also find on the indie game table. Um, it's out, actually. Hmm? I think it's sold out. Or you may not. It may be sold out. It's really uh, pretty. It's <laughs> super pretty. Oh my god. Um, I have done some writing for uh, stuff like Cult Divinities Lost, um, and done some layout work for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. And currently, uh, my company Magpie Games is kickstarting a game called Cartel. It's uh, Mexican narco fiction. Um, so you should definitely check that out. So uh, for this panel, we're going to be focusing not just on standard horror, but on diversity in horror and how diverse voices and backgrounds uh, bring extra levels of thought 
and different levels of insight in ways that can both break new ground in horror and uh, regenerate some tired horror tropes. Um, I'm sure we could list those, but I'm actually going to skip right past going over everything that's tired and sad in role-playing games. <laughs> because here for a while. I, I would start talking and no one wants to hear that. So what I'd like to start off with is asking each of the three of you, uh, what is it that you value about horror and role-playing games? And what are the specific issues that draw you to using horror in this specific medium? Okay, um, so I actually grew up in an extremely conservative Christian background, I like right wing of the right wing, and so for me, I grew up with the the very hardcore uh, interpretation of everything biblical. And when you look at that, the Bible is actually a, a horror book, like it's <laughs> a collection of horror stories. And so I grew up with stonings and murders and revenge, and you know, I, I blame my love of Victorian horror and Poe on growing up with the Bible, which my grandmother really does not like me to say. Um, <laughs> but for me, it was when I kind of moved out of that and started writing my own things. A lot of it was finding a way to express these these horrific things that had shaped my childhood and shaped my family, um, horror allowed me a way to kind of address those and talk about those. And so I didn't come to horror through slasher movies or anything like that. I came to it through almost a Lovecraftian sense of this malevolent god who was just waiting to strike you down for nothing. And so I, I tend more to like the, the sort of biblical Lovecraftian gigantic things, but then very human characters trying to deal with those. And I think that the really great thing about having those viewpoints is that it, it addresses things that we don't like to talk about, that are uncomfortable to talk about, uh, especially as we are moving into an era that is more inclusive and more diverse. Uh, so much of what we deal with as women, as queer folk, it's it's awful. We deal with a lot of shit that sucks, and horror, I think, is a really good place to kind of work through some of that. Um, okay, so one of the first formative books that I read as a small person was Jane Eyre. It had a lot to answer for in, in so many ways. My grandma had like the Reader's Digest condensed books and she just gave them to me because like she collected them but nobody read. So Jane Eyre, man, there we go. Um, and I blame Jane Eyre uh, for many things. Uh, but, but primarily among them uh, developing a very early love of Gothic literature. Um, I, I'm a British lit grad student. I've taught classes in Gothic. And one of the things that I do when I teach this class is I talk about how the Gothic, to play on James' point, says the unsayable. Um, Gothic is weird and broken and not good in many ways. I mean, you just kind of have to embrace it. Twilight is Gothic. Many other things are Gothic. Some of them are good, like Frankenstein. Some of them are not. And that's fine. It's all good because it's all talking about something that we can't normally say, right? And that's by nature messy. So that's what I really love about horror. I love the chance to explore the things that we don't know how to talk about and that as a result scare us. Um, and a chance to come through that and then find some kind of resolution to it. So that's, that's where I go with horror. Well, let's see. So in addition to 
reading books as a small person that were wildly inappropriate for my age. <laughs> Not a sad theme here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in addition, um, I also watched movies that were wildly inappropriate for my age. And um, although it's not as a popular movie right now, um, but the first time I watched like Day of the Dead, the, the sudden knowledge that suddenly putting it together, it's like, wow, these movies are about social anxiety and they have rules. So that's whenever I first uh, also started looking at the idea of the final girl in the horror movie. The idea that there's always the one girl who's gonna survive and kill the baddie. She has a gender ambiguous name and she's there for the male viewpoint. But the fact that, you know, basically aliens and alien. Whenever I saw Ripley climb into that giant suit and go after the alien mother, I was like, I have found my home. <laughs> Um, so for me, a lot of it is wrapped up with the idea of not just the gothic in the traditional sense and also goth, but the idea of exploring monsters and what exactly is a monster and where is a monster, that idea of an outsider and how we kind of try to resolve our social anxieties by making them to these terrible things that we have rules that if we abide by these rules, maybe we'll be safe. Um, is something I've always found very attractive, is playing with the idea of safety and how true that is. So, one of the things, Michelle said it explicitly. Sorry, I missed that. <laughs> so that explains a lot about Bluebeard's Bride, really. <laughs> I, yeah, I was, I was actually like making notes. I, I'm trying to think of questions. I'm like, yeah, these are all very on the nose. <laughs> One of the themes, though, that, that kind of seemed to go across all of those was, as Michelle had said explicitly, saying the unsayable. Now, in terms of, of diversity and different voices, what kinds of, and this may or may not be an easy lob up to Bluebeard's Bride again, what kinds of things are unsayable but that can be said by people that aren't just, oh, say Lovecraft, say aren't just cishet straight white males? So I think there's... Like right now, I think we're actually in a headed into an era where we're getting some really beautiful horror, and uh, one of the movies that started really me really thinking, got me started really thinking. Sorry, words are hard. Uh, about uncoverable subjects in horror was actually Pan's Labyrinth, and it was I've I've watched that movie once. I can't watch it again. I've, I've tried to go back because I love Del Toro's work so much. It's such a beautiful movie. And I, I don't have issues with violence. That's not ever a thing that's bothered me. But there's something about Pan's Labyrinth in particular that strips away the glamorization. And so I think that was the first time where I realized just how fetishized violence has become for us. And it started me thinking on all of these things, like the, the male view of rape. Rape is one of the most horrible things that we deal with, and horror relies on it extensively. And so I think that there's a very clear uh, problem in the fact that so much horror is written by men, and so much of the horror that relies on rape is also written by men. And you can tell when you start looking at this, you can see the male gaze. This is actually something that I've been addressing with some people lately in that oh, well, you know, we, we write about these things to teach lessons about it. And it's like, no, you are writing this in-depth 
scene of a woman being horribly victimized and I can see you enjoying it. Whether you realize it or not, there's there's a sense of power that you're getting out of this. And so I really am a, have started looking at uh, how much we glamorize uh, really awful topics. And so when you start looking at saying the unsayable, I think the first round of that is, well, we're going to gloss it up. We're going to make it easier, prettier to deal with. We're going to talk about it in the voice of the other, like the zombies. You know, zombies are a great metaphor for other things and how you interface with that. Um, and then once you do that, whether it's zombies or aliens or monsters, then you start bringing it in a little bit closer. You have the human monsters, your serial killers, your uh, one of the popular tropes of the deranged, uh, obsessed man just completely fixated on a victim. You start bringing it in a little more, and then you start bringing it in again to something like uh, Pan's Labyrinth or some of those others where all of that is stripped away. There's, It's still told in the mythic, but it's very, very human. Like The monsters are almost secondary to the story. They're there to highlight how awful the human side of it is. And so I think horror is one of those things that kind of goes in steps. And we're getting to the point where we're starting to say the unsayable very bluntly and very plainly. And I think that that's where those of us who are those more marginalized voices are finally starting to have our ability to say, this is not glamorous, this isn't cool, this is really, really fucking awful. And it's powerful. I mean, there's a one of my favorite scenes. Um, Patricia Briggs writes urban fantasy. She has one of the most affecting, horrific, awful rape scenes I've ever seen, and it's one of the most honest ones I've ever seen. Like, there's... There's so much around it, and it's so sensitively handled. And you would I've never seen that in any other book written by a, a guy, because there's just there's no emotional understanding of that. So that, for me, is kind of, I think, where we're getting benefit from it. Do you want to go next? I, I, can, I guess I can. Okay. I would really like it if you did. All right. Um, so, so there are two parts to your question. What is unspeakable, mm -hmm. unshowable? and how are marginalized voices helping that. So I have a, the first part of the question I know is, is hard because in the end, there is nothing that we cannot put in a game. There are wrong ways to do it, yeah. Uh, I've seen those. Uh, I've played those. Mm -hmm. I've made fun of those. I've been angry about those. But, in the end, you know, trying to talk about something as horrific as rape, let's just go to rape right now. Um, one of my favorite performance artists, because I went to art school and did that kind of stuff, is, her name's Karen Finley. And a lot of her work revolves around femininity and feminism and sexual violence. Uh, she is a little out there and because she's a performance artist. And so somebody was, was questioning, like, why do you try to show, you know, why, why do you make this weird art stuff? What are you doing? She's like, well, I could have a man come up on stage and rape me in front of you, and that will still not convey it to you in an emotional way that having me make art about it does. She's like, first of all, I couldn't do that. 
but even if I tried, it would not touch you. So that goes back to the idea of unspeakable and metaphor, like Jane is saying. You know, one of the rules in Bluebeard's Bride is we never write, rape the bride on screen because no one wants to sit around a table and hear about how your character is being violated. That is not fun and that is not accurate experience in any way. However, in one of the most memorable games I've ever had, a male NPC raped a female NPC in front of the player characters. She begged them to help her and they said no. They walked away and then they blamed her for it. Later in the game, they realized what they were doing and they were horrified at themselves. That wouldn't have happened if it had been a direct experience. You know? You need to sometimes approach things obliquely for them to come across. And it's, once again, something we hit a lot with Bluebeard's Bride, the idea that men can't run it, that men's voices can't portray this. And no, like, no one running it is going to be the same as anyone else. But I also, I would say, I would push back a little and say, some men have been raped. Mm -hmm. They can portray that accurately as at the table. But my purpose as a female author is to give someone who doesn't have that lived experience of that fear, that experience, tools to describe it in Bluebeard's Bride. That's, that's the goal. Like, you can run that game as a man, and here are rules that make you have to look at things differently in a way that feels awful, but also good, just like watching a horror movie. Sorry. <laughs> that was a lot. And it's fine. I just uh, briefly wanted to totally. say... I'm, Let's argue. I'm, because I want to touch on that point of the men can't... Yes. I, when I say that, I am in no way saying that men do not understand sexual violence, but I think that because this is something that I've been addressing a lot, I work in anti-harassment. Um, there is a difference in how men and women experience sexual violence, that even if the same exact thing happens. So when I'm talking about it is, at the very best, very difficult for a man to write a woman who is being victimized, that is, is where I am going. And I just want to be very clear that I am not dismissing anyone's experience. And I am not saying that this does not happen. I just want to make sure that everyone's very, very clear on that because I know that that is a big discussion that's going on right now. So thank you for, for pointing that out because yeah, I, I I'm think a little sleep were. deprived. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I totally get that because it's a discussion right now with Blue yeah. Bride with, or my other game, Velvet Glove, mm -hmm. dude saying they can't run it. And that makes me so sad. Yeah. yeah. So gothic stuff. I'm going to go back to that for a minute. Yes. Um, when you look back into the Victorian period, there was this publishing house called Minerva Press. Minerva Press published so many pot-boiling gothic novels, and the majority of them were written by women. Now, this is weird for the publishing scene at the time, right? There were a few notable women authors, um, but mostly not. Unless they wanted to write horror, specifically domestic horror, in the form of gothic novels. And most of them went through Minerva Press. 
Um, there's a reason for that, right? Um, and so when we start talking about what's unsayable, at the time, it was a lot of women's issues that were unsayable, <laughs> right? I mean, we these these stories were about inheritance of properties and perhaps rape and being lost in foreign countries and not having the rights to deal with anything that came across to you. Um, you know, so that, that kind of formed a cornerstone of Gothic and horror in general, because we kind of branch out from Gothic from there. Um, in my class, I teach uh, an article that was written by a Pakistani, uh, English Pakistani playwright. Um, and I don't have her name right here with me because I didn't realize I was going to talk about her. Um, but when she's little, her mom divorces, leaves her father, moves to England. So she moves to a new land, um, lives there successfully for a while, but then her mother dies. Her father comes into this new land and she has to live with him. He has remarried. He hates her mother and her stepmom hates her. So she's in this hostile house where nothing she does is right and she's being punished all the time um, and having to deal with the possibility of an arranged marriage to one of her father's friends or associates, right? As soon as she's legally able, she leaves the house and goes out on her own. That's a gothic story, right? She writes plays that she doesn't identify as gothic, but I definitely would looking at it through that lens because it's about what, you know, what are the, what's the problem, you know, what kind of problems do I have when I have no rights? What are my problems when my voice is not represented or heard, right? These are the kinds of things that we end up talking about in horror when we're talking about domestic horror, um, so like the Gothic, and it can be as simple as like, I'm married to this person who doesn't respect me, is gonna kill me off for something that's very 1970s horror. Um, <laughs> it can be, I'm, you know, people are saying that I'm crazy mm. um, and I'm trying to deal with, you know, the world is gaslighting me, right? Very noir, very 90s horror. Um, a lot of mm, LGBTQIA <laughs> horror comes from this idea, right? That, that you know what's really going on, but nobody around you will recognize it or hear you, right? <laughs> Um, immigrant horror, right? Mm -hmm. We get a lot of that, kind of like what she was saying, get out, oh right? Racial horror, um, that representation of what it's like to be the outsider, to be abject. Mm -hmm. And if you want to talk about horrifying, I make my undergrads read Julia Kristeva about the abject. Ten mm -hmm. pages takes like two weeks. <laughs> but it's really good and I recommend it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that idea of, you know, I'm an outsider, I'm unheard, I don't have power here. What are the ramifications of that and how do I fight against it? Can I, do you mind if I add something that Michelle just made me think of? Um, children in horror. I oh, think is, yeah. I, I actually never put that together, but having grown up, and I, I didn't realize until much later that I was queer, but growing up in such a conservative Christian household and being that child that was, I, I had a very bad childhood. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. And growing up, I, I never really put it together how much of horror is about 
that feeling of powerlessness as a child, even when you have adult characters. I think a lot of it is going back to that no one listened to me when a bad thing was happening. Uh, you know, the adults treated me like I was invisible or like I was an object. Uh, and just, just little things, the, the way we treat children as other. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's something I've never realized, and I think that's a really interesting point. So. <laughs> I learned something. Actually, I think the problem I'm having is I'm trying to keep track of the notes to follow up questions, and I'm like, okay. Um, so, one of the things that we keep kind of circling around that Sarah actually pointed at explicitly a couple of times is when you are an artist creating a work, you never will have complete control of the work for a myriad of reasons, but you'll have a certain degree of control of the output of the work. When you are someone that is writing a game that is going to be run by someone that isn't you, that is going to be played by people that aren't you, that probably are not, hopefully, I would say maybe, though you can correct me if I'm wrong, are not always members of the group whose voice we're trying to represent. How do we create rules and structures and role-playing games to help people do that right? Like Sarah, you talked about guys being able to or not being able to run Bluebeard's Bride. Um, do you want to fill us in maybe a little bit more about the logic <laughs> of that conversation? Sure. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, Bluebeard's Bride is based on a fairy tale. You play the bride, uh, wandering through a house trying to figure out if your husband's a serial killer. Spoiler, he is. And <laughs> there are, in each room, are his former brides, the dead wives, who are there to perhaps teach you a lesson or commiserate with you or various other things. Um, so yeah, it's it's been this conversation where guys say, I can't run this game because I'm not a woman. Because it, it's explicitly a game about feminine horror. And that's not true. Because we can give you tools. Like, we have a whole section in the rule book that, um, of course, in addition to GM advice, is like, here are a list of threats to put in each room. And we gave you categories. We give you subcategories. We give you moves. We tell you exactly how to do it. Where the hesitation is, I think, pretending I'm a dude for a minute, is having to put yourself in the mindset of a woman in this situation because it's all based on institutional sexism. So you're having to think about how these spaces that are supposed to be safe, how they're not. Why it's scary to be alone with a strange man. Um, why it feels awful to have your girdle suddenly attack you and try and squeeze you to death, you know? And what that says about what society is saying about being a woman. It's, it's fear of empathy. I think is the only thing I can think of. Because running that game, um, I've said this before, I have to basically pretend I'm a dude. I have to embrace the misogyny that our culture has imprinted in me since a child. And I bring that out and I show it to the players. And it's awful. The same with Velvet Glove. Um, so a lot of it is fear of empathy, fear of understanding a little too much what you're doing at the table. And that's something that came, comes up with Velvet Glove too, is I look like the guy who's sexually harassing these teenage girls and that feels awful. 
and and so i i get i think we can give people so many tools and hints and tips but in the other side we also can give them a lack of patience like you know what you're you're worried about running the game just fucking do it or don't <laughs> either you're going to fuck up badly and yes we will tell you you have and then you can figure out how to do better next time so sorry i'll get off my soapbox <laughs> no, actually, I was actually just going to ask you a follow-up question on the soapbox. No! Because I, am, I, I was told explicitly I'm not here to make things better. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, God, I told you that, didn't I? No, I, I think we both told him oh, that. Oh, shit! Yeah. <laughs> we should be canceling each other out then. Oh. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm a guy. No, I love all of you so much. I really do. Hi, I'm here to make things worse. So, <laughs> I'm making other people make things worse. Just to make it explicit, do you want guys to run Bluebeard's Bride? Yes. Do you want guys to run Velvet Glove? Yes. Should will they potentially learn something from it? Yes. And will, if you don't, I'm, I'm creeped out by you. <laughs> no pressure. Having played Bluebeard's Ride, I'm on Sarah's side. Seriously, like it's good, but like it's a learning experience. How, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I just because I I think that there's a a really important distinction here too. Uh, role playing is used in therapy a lot because it helps put you in a role that you are not comfortable with. Um, this is going to sound completely unrelated, but it is actually related. I, so social anxiety is a huge problem for the creative crowd. A lot of us are extremely shy, extremely anxious about being around strangers, and we're in a position somehow where we have to be around strangers a lot. Like I don't know if yeah. we're just all a bunch of masochists or if we just <laughs> made really poor choices in life and are now not sure how to get out of them. Um, but we find ourselves in positions where we're essentially having to role play a person that we're not. And so uh, the author, Neil Gaiman, uh, is, I'm really grateful for this, been very open about his struggles with social anxiety and has said that he has people ask him all the time, well, you're not socially anxious, you're great with people, what's going on? And he said, I took acting classes. I learned to create a character for myself so that I could exist in public spaces without just dying of embarrassment. I'm, you know, he's basically like, I'm British and I have social anxiety and I'm British. How do you expect me to survive this? Um, and I think that role playing is really powerful because it, it asks you to put yourself in someone else's shoes, but it gives you permission to, in a way, fuck up. Yeah. Like it's it's kind of giving you that uh, that openness, and that is something that I think in particular, uh, men are not allowed as a general rule to have those screw ups and to have like as women we're almost the on the opposite side where we're expected to screw up constantly, and it's often difficult for us to uh, come back from those because we're judged by those. But for men, it's difficult to even admit that those have happened or to allow those to happen. And role-playing, I think, gives that sort of softer boundary where you can experiment with those things. But there's also, when you're creating an RPG or creating a story uh, from a perspective that is yours and then handing it to other people, you can kind of set those guidelines and you can set expectations and benchmarks and open it up to people. When you're running that game, I think that even if, like, even if I run Bluebeard's Bride, I need to be open. I need to be listening to what the developer is saying. I need to be reading between the lines and trying to figure out the the deeper elements of the story. Especially as a GM, I find that my my responsibility to intelligently read the story. 
Uh, and so I think that it is especially useful for people to be writing games like Bluebeard's Ride, like Chill, where you are putting yourself in the position of someone else that is maybe not you, and having that ability to try and put yourself in another mindset. And it's not comfortable. It sucks. Yeah. I, it really, really sucks when you start realizing how other people live. I think that's why Get Out was such a powerful movie because you've, like, my partner watched it and he's a straight white guy and he's just like, oh, people think like, what? <laughs> what is? I'm like, yeah, I, yeah. So. Definitely. Um, so I'm gonna kind of piggyback off this. So one of the something that's slightly different that we do with Chill um, that I'm actually really proud of um, is. Chill, this is the third edition. There's been two before it, done in the 80s and done in the 90s. Um, and that kind of tells you a little bit about where it's coming from. Um, it was supposed to be set as an international organization that fights the unknown. Capital U, unknown. Um, we took that, right, because we have the license. We couldn't change it too much, but we tried to actually commit to the idea that this is an international organization and that when you're fighting the unknown, you don't have an elite cadre of white, fit, male, uh, you know, soldiers out there fighting people. You've got people who've had experiences with bad things and have been damaged by those things. Um, and this is who you've got. And that's powerful. It's not like these are the dregs of society. It's like you've got people who have health conditions. You've got people who are trans. You've got people who uh, are all over the world, right? So we've got writers from all over the world. We just had uh, Joyce Cheng, uh, who's in Singapore, write this amazing, amazing, so good, amazing section on the Pokong uh, for our latest book. So good. Um, so we're getting people so who have different book voices. Could you say the name of the book, please? Uh, that is the Undead book, which is coming out. Currently, we have Monsters and Chill Third Edition on the indie table. Um, <laughs> I'm working on the marketing. It's see? good. Thank it's you. Good. Um, but we do so many pre-gen characters, and we do them of color, and we do them male and female and trans and non-binary. We have some in wheelchairs. We have some with braces. We have some that are deaf. We, and we talk about this in our books, like how do we play these things? We don't have uh, drawbacks that are lame or blind or whatever. Um, you know, we, because not all of these things are necessarily disabilities in the terms of the game, right? Just because you can't do one thing doesn't mean you can't do other things. Um, and we try to leave room for all of these play experiences as you're fighting crazy zombie deceiver unknown weird stuff. Uh, <laughs> I love that description. Yeah, I really want to follow that somehow, yeah. but I don't know how that'll translate to print. I don't know how it will either. But here we are. Um, so that's what we do. We leave. We put in representation. We have like, so Save came out, and my favorite illustration in that book is of three people who are closing in on this monster that you can see in the distance in a parking garage, and they're signing to each other. I love that so much. We ran it by people. It wasn't that hard. Um, and and we got something that works. And it has made a difference to people who come up and tell us that they're really, it means a lot to them to see themselves in that, even though it's a horror game, right? 
Um, so I think that having that room for representation and putting that out there is another way to make room for people to be someone they're not and to experience that. Hold on, did you, did you just say actually representing other people? Isn't that hard? It is. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that hard. Not everyone has boobs out to here. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. And, and those of us who do don't necessarily wear really low cut things. Exactly. Like, like Sometimes, I, but yeah. not always. And I, I fight. I do martial arts. And dear God, I do not want to have to be worried about falling out of a goddamn corset <laughs> when I'm trying to kick a guy in the face. Like, that's just not going to happen. One of the things that, so a story from early on, uh, when we were doing our first set of pregens, and we got uh, oh, Tim, and I can't remember his, Tim Nelson, I think, um, who is an uh, African-American man, uh, to do some of our, our things. And we had him do a portrait of an African-American man who's a little older, he's a doctor, he used to be a boxer, this is, you know, and now he fights the unknown. And we kept having to tell him, no, you don't have to make him pale. <laughs> you can make him, you know, not pale. You can put some gray in his hair because he's in his 50s. And he's like, I've never drawn an older African-American man where I wasn't asked to make him look young and white. And we can have that in our games and it can be fine. And so, yeah. So I want to actually do a little bit of a follow-up on that. Um, in addition to being game designers, a lot of you also do editorial and development work. It is not true if any of you uh, hear a rumor that from back in the days when she used to be an editor at Faza that Michelle still has the geeky fanboy letters I used to write to them that I put on in a box, and the blackmail thereof is the reason I'm moderating this panel. Untrue. So you're all also experienced editors, developers. When you are working with people whose voices are not normally heard, are there, does it take extra effort? Is there anything different you need to do? Because, I mean, it was funny. It was a joke. It's hard to represent people. Yeah. It isn't until it is. Right. So what are your methods for that? So I've, like I said, been working in publishing a while. And... A really awkward note of my publishing career is that the way that I met some of the first big name authors in the industry was I was attending a panel at DragonCon and it was like a publishing Q&A or something or just publishing 101 and that year a book had come out by an author named Justine Larbalestier and her main character was a black girl. The cover was white. And it, it threw a grenade into the publishing industry that started off some much needed conversations. But the panelists were talking about it and they were trying to remember Justine's last name. And I had just started working with the magazine. I had actually been helping cover some of this stuff. And I, I raised my hand and I was like, uh, her last name's Laura Blustier. And so I ended up talking to them afterwards. But this was, a, this was a decade ago. And we're still fighting whitewashing in the publishing industry where it's fucking hard to get a, a black girl on a cover. Um, I used to work for the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and we had an internal publication called The Bulletin. And we had, it, it was, it kind of been taken over by a bunch of old white guys. Uh, the, the crusty, hoary old face of science fiction. And we had a major explosion where there was, this was an industry professional organizational magazine and it had a chicken chain mail on it. 
and it had two guys with a regular column talking about how women should be like Barbie, silent and pretty and not heard. And at the time, I was not in a position where I could say anything. So I went to a couple of, of people that I knew and worked with, Jeff Vandermeer and Ari Marmel, and I was like, hey, here's what's going on. Can you say something? You have louder voices than I do. And so the whole thing exploded. I ended up being one of the leaders on the rehabilitation and, and redesign of the magazine. And we came up to the 11th hour and we didn't have a cover. Various things happened and fallen through. So I donated a piece that an artist named Galen Dara had done for me of one of my characters, which was a woman of Middle Eastern descent, pre-Islamic era, uh, based on the step cultures of uh, kind of north of Iran. Um, and she and I had worked together very carefully to make sure that the horse was accurate, the uh, clothing was accurate, the, even the tack for the horse was accurate. It's a beautiful piece, kind of a watercolor fantasy uh, style thing. We put it on the cover. And Jerry Purnell, who is a, <laughs> he is a, was a fixture, he died just a couple months ago, was a fixture, one of the, the big founding voices of science fiction went on this rant about Disney princesses in fucking silks riding their unicorns and how at least Red Sonia had the self-confidence to wear chainmail and to know that she didn't need real armor. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. not joking. This was, it was, it was impressive. This on our internal forums. And I had been dealing with this for, like, I have not, I've been working 70 hour weeks trying to fix the mess caused by a bunch of old white guys and I lost it. Um, so I got reprimanded for it, but I didn't care because it was an amazing feeling. But we were at, <laughs> we were at uh, an event in Washington, D.C. A, a few months after that, and it was a huge event. It was STEM, and there were, it was a block from the White House. Obama and his daughters had gone to it the year before. There were 325,000 people there. And we had a table, and we had this magazine prominently displayed on it. And I cannot tell you how many uh, Middle Eastern and even Hispanic women and girls came up to us and were like, we don't read science fiction or fantasy, but we've never seen ourselves on a cover. We've, we've, we've never seen this. And it was one of those moments for me where I just kind of sat back and I was like, we, we need to change. I'm not doing enough. I'm not aware enough of this. And so there's a lot of talk of diversity and there's still a very difficult push to try and get that past talk or past one or two characters. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I worked for Green Ronin and we did a call a year or two ago for female and marginalized authors only trying to get more developers in. And oh my God, the internet exploded with how yeah. dare you discriminate against men? Okay. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Look at this industry. Um, so yeah, it's still, it's still a struggle. Well, and just to play off of that, and particularly when we're talking about horror and that voice of the other, bringing that back in, that's something we need to work towards because that's where we have other, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> uh, so, so finding those voices, elevating them, you know, going to them before you publish and saying, look, did I, did I fuck up? Yeah. Right? Did I screw this up? How can I fix it if I did? Can I have you fix it? Can I pay you? Can I put your name on this? right? Representation, not just in what we do, but also like bringing people in and having them tell their stories um, in horror, right? Because they've got stuff to tell you about, um, makes a big difference. 
Also, I just representation doesn't mean having one person, like one queer, disabled woman of color on a team of straight, white, mm. able-bodied men. Um, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that is the saddest I've ever heard. <laughs> um, that's what this means a lot, and it's really frustrating to me where you have to have that one person who represents every single thing bundled into one, and it's like, look, we're diverse! No. no. Also creates the unbearable weight of representation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sarah, mm -hmm. did you want to get in on this? Because after that, I think we'll have like 10 minutes for questions, maybe? Um, well, one of the things I wanted to say, um, although they already made like most of the good points, all the good points, like not much to add, except that um, like we understood for Bluebeard, one of the reasons it worked was it was three women who were writing it, one of whom is a person of color. Um, and so we tried to reflect that in the art. And I made the joke earlier, it is hard, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, and then, so Magpie Games is a little, little different. We're a minority-owned company, um, and so we do have a mentorship program that we, we've started where we're helping new designers go through the entire process of printing their, uh, their games. Like we just did uh, Passion de la Passions by Brandon, which is so fantastic. Telenovela. So fantastic. It's not horror, but it's like it was important to get his voice there. And then like I'm working with Kate on her game Crosswords Car Crossroads Carnival, uh, which is horror, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but also about hope. Um, so we have at Magpie, we've made it a priority to work with people who have diverse voices as much as possible. Um, we, we did have our white guy who went through the process, just like we have the white guy on our team. Love you, Brandon. Um, but, you know, we want to put our money where our mouth is, and so that's why we are trying as hard as we can to do that in every place possible. So we hire minority artists, we help minority designers through our program, um, so that's just another way you can do that. Mm -hmm. Can I add one? Sorry. Go, I feel like I'm talking go, a lot, go, but go. Um, one of the other awkward conversations that I think we're kind of having right now is that there are not as many people of color or disabled or minorities or marginalized of general sorts in the industry. Mm -hmm. So there's a tendency right now to be like, well, I'm going to go to the one black guy I've heard of in this industry. Oh, and he's like, well, yeah. I've, I've got like 3,000 queries. Go talk to these other people. Well, they haven't done anything. Yeah, know why they haven't done anything is because you guys just hired another, the white guy for like the 3,000th time. Um, so one of the things, <laughs> I keep making it make sad sounds. Um, one of the things I'm really working on with Nasaba Press is that I'm reaching out to people who've never written for RPGs before or who are, and I do this with Wallstaff Books too, who aren't there yet. And I mentor them because I got, I've received a lot of mentorship coming. I was actually really lucky, but I've seen a lot of people who try to do this thing and just jump in full-fledged and they've had no instruction, no mentorship, no help. And because the, there was no representation for them, they didn't grow up in RPGs. They weren't welcome at the table or they didn't have a community mm -hmm. that, that brought them in. So we desperately need to own up to the fact that we have 
kind of isolated and excluded non-normalized people for so long that we have to start making an actual effort to go out and find those people and bring them in or we're going to keep having this problem. So. Yes. Uh, I agree completely. Um, and my opinions don't matter. I'm just a moderator. But uh, <laughs> I also do some editing, and I found that to be entirely mm -hmm. true. And mm -hmm. um, people ask me why I don't write many role-playing games anymore. It's because I got bored of that. But the work that you can do editing and helping yes. get other people's voices out there can be truly transformational, not just for them, but for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and because I'm a white guy, everything has to be about me. Uh, editing the voices of people who have never had a chance to be part of things is yeah. a way to learn about the world that is like no other. So we have seven minutes and ten seconds before they kick us out of the room. Is there anybody that would like to ask a question of our wonderful panel? I'm going to call on Anna Kreider. <laughs> oh, excuse me, Anna fucking Kreider from the Talking Anna Kreider, but uh, no, um, so Get Out, obviously, um, has uh, I mean, people are still talking about it, and it's almost two years later. Um, I feel like it kind of revolutionized how people consider what can be mainstream horror movies, because I've seen a couple previews for things that have, like, I've just gone, like, wow, I'm so glad it exists, but, like, I'm never fucking seeing it, because that's, like, too close to me, and, like, I'm not used to having that experience. Um, as game designers, uh, I'm a big fan of being open when I steal from media. So, like, what do you, what, what, like, useful tech do you feel like is embedded in Get Out that we can, like, kind of steal and incorporate into tabletop? Um, I'll do this. Okay. Yeah, I got this. Um, <laughs> so anything can be flipped, right? Things that look normal on the surface and we're really used to. If we can flip it and see what it looks like to be an outsider in that position, um, that's a fertile world for game because on the one hand, it's going to be familiar to your players. And on the other hand, you can twist that in all kinds of ways and show the ways that it's not welcoming and the way that it's not uh, happy and shiny and, and lovely. And that in itself is scary. So I would say just the realization that you can do that with anything. I think movies are one of the most powerful forms of media that we have. A, they are backed massively, so they have distribution all over the world. Um, they're also the lowest entry point. It's a couple hours of your time. You don't have to spend if you know days or months reading. You don't have to have a high literacy score. Like one of the things that I, I think we need to also remember here is that not everyone had the privilege to grow up in a house full of books. Um, I, I would like to start seeing gaming addressing how to get into areas that are not privileged with high education. Um, with movies, you don't have to have that. Movies are in every language, well, not every language, but in a lot of languages. There's a relatively low bar to making your own, um, especially now that we have things like YouTube. So movies are a really great way to tie things to what people understand. Uh, Get Out in particular I think is great because it's, it doesn't like shock you in the face. It's very subtle. And then it, you get to the end and you're like, wait, oh my god, I've, I've been forced to, to understand this and it flipped the script on me. And it was really smart that way. And I think that having that subtlety, um, but also having that visual connection 
And I think that's really a good thing to use movies for, is to kind of say, okay, here's what you're used to, here's what you've seen, now I want you to experience and explore it. Sarah? Um, I've been trying to come up with an answer, and the main answer I have is, I think the important lesson Get Out told us is to give people of color money and let them tell their own stories. Accurate. Yeah, 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 yeah. And followed up by Black Panther and like, okay, yeah. I give you all the money, I shut up now. Yeah, no freaking kidding. So, because we, we have literally two minutes, so like, soundbite, how in role-playing games do we do that? Do what? Which specific? Give people of color the money and let them tell their stories. There's no money in gaming? What are you talking about? There's a very big policy in this question. And this That's is the true horror. Those of you who want to design role-playing games. Uh, so I actually have a bit of an answer to that. Oh, good. Um, please apply for the IGDN Metatopia Scholarship. If you are a person of color, if you're on the LGBTQIA spectrum, uh, if you are a woman, uh, if you are non-binary, whatever, um, apply. We will send you with room and travel expenses and pay for your badge to the convention where you get to be the game designer among game designers and get good feedback on your game. Sarah was our first one. She can tell you about that experience, but it's deliberately designed to increase the diversity and re representation of underheard voices uh, in this industry. And I think that that's one of the best things that we've really done as an org, right? Um, so I probably shouldn't be talking about this yet because I'm just like six months behind on actually doing it. Uh, I'm going to be working with Green Ronin to establish a, not a mentorship, but essentially a, a form of academy where we are developing resources like classes, uh, podcasts on how to enter the gaming industry, how to read contracts, how to work on all of this. There are some other folks I'm talking to. Right now I'm working with Joe Carricker and Jack Norris on this. Um, and we'll be trying to develop those resources and working with other game companies to offer the things that you get at conventions for people who can't go to conventions to try and help lower that barrier. Because right now, so much relies on networking and so much relies on, on who you know and being able to talk face to face that especially marginalized folks may not have that ability. So we're going to be trying to make some of those resources available on a much larger scale. Excellent. Okay, we are out of time, so thank you all for coming. This was Blood on the Table, Horror and RPGs. Sorry we didn't get more questions, that's entirely my fault. The insights are theirs, the faults are mine. <laughs>